Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Douglas MacArthur in the First World War, Part 3, to France. The North Atlantic is cold and stormy in October and November, and it loomed as a dreaded specter to thousands of rainbow men at Camp Mills who had never seen the ocean, much less taken a twelve-day journey across it. To a man, they all knew that shipping routes to Europe were patrolled by German submarines. The danger was clear, but in late 1917, so was the need for American troops in Europe. The adoption of the convoy system by the British and United States navies was a counter to the U-boat threat. But unpreparedness for war found America severely lacking in merchant shipping to get its men to France. The transport of the 27,000 men of the Rainbow and its complement of draft animals was accomplished in the winter of 1917, but it was with great difficulty. It took five separate convoys beset with shipping mishaps, a nightmare journey for the draft animals, and outbreaks of sickness and disease on the transports. There was many a Rainbow man who at some point during the journey prayed for a German torpedo to put him out of his misery. In the weeks between Germany's resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare and America's entry into World War I, Rear Admiral William Bowden Sims of the United States Navy was called to Washington, D.C. He was given a secret mission, proceed to Great Britain and coordinate with the Admiralty on the presumption that the United States would soon be at war on the side of the Allies. Sims traveled in civilian clothes under an assumed name, but secrecy was no longer necessary upon his arrival in Britain. War had been declared by President Wilson and the Congress. Sims traveled under the assumption that the Allies would be able to contain Germany in the naval war. After all, the British papers were full of stories of Great Britain's control of the seas. The Admiral was in for a shock. One of the first men Sims met with was First Sea Lord Admiral John Jellicoe. Jellicoe told Sims that despite what was being reported in the newspapers, the losses in British shipping to the German U-boat campaign could not be sustained. Britain would be out of the war in a few months if the situation could not be reversed. Sims heard a similar situation report from Prime Minister Lloyd George as well as King George V. A way had to be found to thwart Germany's submarines. It was Sims that proposed the idea of the convoy system. He recognized it was the destroyer that the submarine feared. Quick to the chase, destroyers were the only vessels capable of locating and engaging submarines in the time between their firing and submerging again. The British Grand Fleet guarding the North Sea and the shipping lanes between England and France were left unhampered by the U-boats because of destroyer screens and escorts. With commitments in those areas and the Mediterranean, however, Great Britain did not have the destroyers necessary for convoy duty in the Atlantic. The addition of American destroyers in support of the Allied cause made that a moot point. At first, the British Admiralty was reluctant to the idea of convoying. There was a lack of faith in the capability of merchant captains to perform a convoy's zigzag maneuvers in concert with each other. Fortunately for Sims, his plans for convoying found a sympathetic ear with Lloyd George. The degree of losses led the British to try anything. A successful run of a trial convoy from Gibraltar to Britain under destroyer escort in May 1917 settled it. The convoy system was adopted with great success. The matter of shipping was not so easily settled. The Americans naively believed that the Allies would wish to help bring the Doughboys to Europe, but no shipping was forthcoming. After his arrival in Britain in June 1917, General John J. Pershing was rebuffed when he brought up the matter with Lloyd George. 
He got the same response from the French when he arrived on the continent. The feeling was that if the Allies shipped the Americans to France, then they should be integrated into the French and British armies. Pershing believed the Allies would have put forth all of their shipping if he had agreed to such terms. It wasn't until the crisis of the German Spring Offensives of 1918 that Allied shipping was made available to get the Americans to Europe as fast as possible. Of course, after the war, a complete bill was submitted to the U.S. government for services rendered. For the first year of the war, however, the United States was scrambling to gather enough ships to ferry its men to France, and it was for this reason that it took a series of convoys to get the Rainbow Division to Europe. The first men of the Rainbow to leave Camp Mills for France departed on October 7th, and theirs was no easy journey. A few weeks previously, orders from MacArthur's office circulated through the different units. Seven men from each unit of the Rainbow, volunteers so to speak, were required for special duty. Under the command of Captain Dickinson of the 149th Field Artillery, the volunteers were to accompany the division's draft animals on their voyage across the ocean. They were assembled and sent to Newport News, Virginia, where a massive corral complex was located. It took many transports to ship all the animals, but for the 1,600 horses and mules on the SS Hercules, the 3,000-mile journey was a nightmare and took 33 days. Only days out of Virginia, the ship had engine trouble, so it pulled back into New York for repairs. Once at sea, storms ripped the ship. Animals couldn't keep their feet, and the decks were turned into slaughterhouses as horses were tossed, trampled, and slammed between the bulkheads. Over 250 animals died during the journey, and it was only due to the dedicated service of the volunteers from Camp Mills that any of the animals made it at all. Shortly after the contingent left for Newport News, a host of ships were cobbled together at the docks of Hoboken, New Jersey. Sealed orders stated their purpose. They were to carry the first contingent of Rainbow soldiers to France. Three of the transports, USS Tenedores, Pescadores, and Mallory, were United Fruit Company ships, acquired by the U.S. Shipping Administration and turned into troop ships. The other three ships waiting to load the Rainbow men were former German liners of the Hamburg-America Line. These ships had sought refuge in the United States at the outbreak of war in 1914, were impounded upon the breaking of diplomatic relations, and then confiscated with the declaration of war. The Cincinnati became the USS Covington, but the ships President Lincoln and President Grant retained their patriotic names. Prior to their eviction, however, the German crews did the best they could to sabotage the ships. Camp Mills awoke early on 17 October to find that many units in the division were missing. The troops in the first convoy rose in the dark and marched with their gear to the train station at Garden City. The train took them to Long Island ferries, waiting to take them across the East River to Hoboken. It took all day to load the six ships. Douglas MacArthur made the train and ferry rides with the GHQ staff, which then boarded the USS Covington. As an officer, he raided a much better room than the men, who were crammed below decks in bunks stacked three high from the floor to the ceiling. Joining the GHQ staff on the Covington were the 117th Engineers and the 165th, 167th, and 168th Field Hospitals. The other ships of the convoy underwent the same routine, loading in the thousands of doughboys of the Rainbow. The President Lincoln took on all the field artillery units, the 67th Field Artillery Battalion Headquarters, and the men of the 149th, 150th, and 151st Artillery. They were joined by the 167th Ambulance Company. Its sister ship, President Grant, took on the 168th Infantry, 165th and 166th Ambulance Companies, the 166th Field Hospital, and the 117th Signal Battalion. 
The 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 166th Infantry boarded the United Fruit Company boats Mallory and Pescadores, while the 3rd Battalion stayed at Camp Mills to take over the military police duties from the Virginia men that were embarking. Finally, the 168th Ambulance Company boarded the Pescadores, and the Maryland men of the Trench Mortar Battalion boarded the Tenedores. On October 18th, the ships left their berths, and once past the Statue of Liberty and Sandy Hook, the convoy was at sea. Douglas MacArthur later wrote of the experience of the sea journey. Life on board a troop ship was a new and somewhat unnerving experience for the uninitiated. There were endless drills and efforts made to properly exercise the men. Space was cramped, and each man was allowed 45 minutes time a day on deck. Life belts were worn all the time. The ship was dark at night, with no smoking allowed in the open. In a running sea, it is a real sensation to grope around decks in the darkness. The convoy sailed under sealed orders opened up each day with ship's positions designated for the following afternoon. All lifeboats were left down to deck level, and all rafts unleashed and placed along the rail. Ships were constantly holding target practice with their six-inch guns. The targets, resembling periscopes, were towed. In his reminiscences, MacArthur described the uncertainty of looking over the ocean knowing a German submarine could be watching, but that knowing his brother, Captain Arthur MacArthur USN, was guarding the convoy on the USS Chattanooga gave him a good feeling. It was a fantasy. Captain MacArthur's ship was in Groton, Connecticut. 800 miles out of New York, the President Grant had trouble with its engines. The problem was due to normal wear, but there were many who suspected sabotage by its previous German crew. Once at sea, many of the lifeboats on the former German ships were found to have been dismantled and put back together with glue, so sabotage of the Grant's engines was not beyond the realm of possibility. It was a lonely voyage for the Grant back to New York, unescorted, as the convoy didn't stop for stragglers. The men returned to New York and a storm-ravaged Camp Mills, still inhabited by the New York, Georgia, and Ohio units who were about to leave on their own voyages. When the Grant turned around, the rest of the convoy pushed on to the port of Saint-Nazaire, France. Pershing's desire for a unified American army in its own sector made Saint-Nazaire the obvious port for debarkation. The AEF commander had his eye on the Saint-Miel sector for American commitment. Located at the mouth of the Loire River, Saint-Nazaire's port facilities and rail line made it the appropriate port for a logistical supply line to the Saint-Miel area. On October 29th, the first troops of the Rainbow landed in France, catching their first glimpse of a people and culture much different from what they had left. About the same time the Rainbow landed in France, the 165th Infantry got their orders to leave for embarkation. Once again, shortages in shipping required a separation of the unit. Major William Donovan's 1st Battalion entrained from Montreal, Canada on October 25th. They would catch the HMS Tunisian, bound for Liverpool, England. The 2nd and 3rd Battalions boarded another Hamburg-America liner. The America, with a K, which had been renamed the USS America with a C, was docked in New York City, and it too was bound for Saint-Nazaire. Leaving New York, USS America rendezvoused and convoyed with three other former German ships, Agamemnon, Mount Vernon, and von Steuben. Agamemnon was formerly the Kaiser Wilhelm de Grasse and carried the 166th Infantry's 3rd Battalion and Georgia's Machine Gun Battalion. Mount Vernon was formerly the Crown Princess Cecile and carried the Texas men of the 117th Supply Train. Aboard the ships, men went through the same routines experienced by those who already made the trip. Convoying was no simple matter. 
It was a precision process, and ships had to be able to maneuver together and zigzag to confuse submarines. On a dark, foggy night, the difficulties of convoying became obvious. While zigzagging, the USS von Steuben didn't change course and rammed the USS Agamemnon. After the impact, one Georgia machine gunner from the Agamemnon found himself on the deck of the von Steuben, surrounded by a group of screaming nurses. He had been on the rail when the collision occurred. Roll call revealed his absence, and it wasn't until days later that the 151st Machine Gun Battalion found out the man's fate. All the ships were able to continue on. A few hundred miles from France, American destroyers based in Great Britain came to escort the convoy through the most hazardous part of their journey and the final leagues to France. But due to a U-boat warning, the ships pulled into the port of Brest on 14 November instead of Saint-Nazaire. Too big for the docks at Brest, the transports had to wait at sea for a few days before lighters could unload them. Days after the New York men embarked on their journey, Alabama's 167th Infantry left on the 4th Convoy. They too were separated and sent on the RMS Andania, a Canadian ship out of Halifax, and the SS Lapland out of the New York docks. The Lapland also carried the 117th Signal Battalion, one of the units returned to New York when the President Grant broke down on the 1st Convoy. These men weren't going to France. They were bound for Liverpool, Great Britain, where they arrived on November 18th. Once ashore, the 3rd Battalion of the 167th was thrown into quarantine as mumps had spread like wildfire on their ship. The 167th really got the worst from training camp and the voyage to Europe. Most of the boys were rural types, never before exposed to the diseases that most of the urban city dwellers had been exposed to all their lives. Once out of quarantine, the 167th was entrained to Winchester, where they took in the sights of the ancient cathedral. It wasn't until late November that they were finally transported to Le Havre, France, to join the rest of the division. Only the Iowa men of the 168th Infantry were left in the United States after the Alabamians left. But finally, their time came as well. On November 14th, they pulled out of Camp Mills, just as the 41st National Guard Division was coming into camp to begin their training. Boarding the RMS Celtic, Baltic, and Aurania, they were in for the same trouble the 167th encountered. Sickness broke out on the ships, with scarlet fever running rampant on the Aurania. They too went to Liverpool and were immediately quarantined. The musical band of the 168th Infantry was in their own separate quarantine as they had contracted spinal meningitis. It wasn't until early December that the men of the 168th made their passage across the English Channel and with their arrival, the rainbow was concentrated in France. The rainbow's ordeal at sea was over, but there wasn't anything better awaiting them in France. During their voyage, the Russian Revolution had taken place and soon the war in the East was going to be over. All the German troops that had been on the Eastern Front were now coming west. The rainbow arrived in Europe at a low point in the Allied cause, and soon they would be called upon to stem Germany's final drive for ultimate victory. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.